episode of the Third Person Podcast. My name is Chris Milhouse, joined as always by my friend, Daryl Hammond. How are you, Daryl? Never better, bro. Never better, bro. <laughs> All right. I like it. I like it. Going with a little street lingo there. All right. Uh, Never better, bro. Hang in 10. Hang as in always, 10. we are uh, joined by our producer, Jim Search. It's online here. Yo, what's, uh, what's happening? Let's talk about it. Oh, you Jim know, is the, Jim is the most naturally funny member of the podcast. Let's not forget that it's Listen, yeah, we're not. We don't forget that at all, man. We I, we all unanimously agree on that. That that shit last episode, Dara. I'm not gonna lie. That shit carried me all day. When you <laughs> said that. I'm not bullshitting you. I was like that. Yeah. that means a lot, man. I really appreciate that, man. Yeah, yeah you you're the funniest guy in the room, bro. <laughs> <laughs> look <laughs> out! Look out, universe. I'm on my way. Absolutely, guys. Uh, we're getting uh, rave reviews on our last podcast. So I uh, just want to be give a quick shout out to everybody who's been listening, who's been downloading, subscribing, sharing the posts. We've been seeing a lot of shares. So thank you for doing that. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow us on social media. Uh, I'm at Chris Milhouse, uh, two L's in Milhouse. Daryl is at Daryl C. Hammond. Uh, and then Jim is at Jim Search. Make sure to give us a follow. Uh, you know, show us a little love. Share the posts. Tell your friends, give us a rating. Uh, everyone's been loving these. So we're, and I, I'd like to say this too, is that I'm working right now on getting all these on uh, YouTube. We're starting a YouTube channel and we will have uh, the video available for everybody. Cause a lot of people are like, you know, I want to see you guys. All right, well, here you go. In all our glory, we will be on YouTube. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Hopefully by the time this, uh, this podcast episode airs, we will have it all up and running, which would be cool. Oh, yeah. It- all right, right, so we're getting good reviews, is that it? Yeah, getting good reviews, man. Everyone's uh, digging this, and I appreciate everybody listening. We really are getting some, uh, some good numbers of people uh, tuning in and checking it out. They like the Swalwell one? Yeah, it's great, man. I mean, uh, I, I, we get a lot of comments on that. A lot of people, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are just finding out about our podcast now, which, you know, it takes time. So a lot of people go back and listen from the beginning a lot. So we get a lot of uh, comments about um, Amy Sedaris's episode. That's a good you know, one. How, how great was she, man? She's awesome. I, I love Amy. Uh, and, you know, the, I think a lot of people are just uh, really excited. You know, they like the Richard Marks one. Um, we just, you know, get a lot, of, a lot of good feedback. So I appreciate you guys. And thank you so much for uh, checking us out, you know. And um, we got a, definitely got a hot one today, don't we? Jim, I want to get Trump on. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could you Although imagine Trump- if we had him on? That would be that would be a lot. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be as good as what, who we have on today. Mm. Yeah, but it would be it would be pretty, pretty incredible. If we were I would say I would say diametrically opposed. Uh, these two these two folks uh, would be very different. On yeah, very very different end of the spectrums for between our guests today and uh, our former president, Mr. Donald J. Trump. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I know you've, you've obviously played him on uh, SNL, Daryl, uh, and then he's tweeted about you a couple of times and put mm-hmm. statements out how you were his favorite, uh, you know, that did the impression of him. So I, I feel like it's not out of the question. You know, he loves getting on and platforms and talking about himself, really. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like we could at some point get him. I mean, I, I don't, it's not realistic at this moment, but could be. You never know with that guy. I mean, I'm one of the few people that uh, have said that uh, he's smart. Um, yeah. th- but, you know, even we got Swalwell to say, 
that cunning is a form of intelligence, you know? And I mean, it would be, I would have to, I would have to sit down and really write out a lot of questions for this guy and not, you know what I mean? No, you wouldn't. No, he'd do it all. I'm sure. Like yeah. he probably wouldn't even let me, you know, swipe in there, you know? <laughs> like, Brother, I, he loves, he loves if, to talk. If that's the case, if you have him on, I can just run to the store while he's talking. Cause I, yeah, we won't I, even need you that day. Yeah, and I'll just I'll hit record and I run some errands around Brooklyn and then just you know let me let me give me a five minute heads up and I'll get back and I yeah I mean hit, hit stop that would be that would be something and you know we we talked uh, you know on the last one believe about getting possibly getting Monica Lewinsky on that would be amazing that would be incredible you know these are those are some you know some some potential guests that we were hoping to uh, maybe track down at some point you know coming up but. Uh, you know, we've got we've got some pretty good ones on tap, man. We can't announce them yet because we haven't gotten them scheduled officially yet. But man, we have got some really killer guests coming on. And uh, I mean, how are we how are we getting all these people, Jim? <laughs> I mean, listen, it's it. I I can't say it's me, right? I'm, I'm I can't not, say it's me either. I can't I, say it's me either. I mean, it's definitely, it's, definitely not me. Uh, all it's right, you, my friend, it's definitely you. <laughs> it's. It's obvious my, the stellar production is what's pulling that. I, that's yeah, what it is. It's the production values. That's yeah. right. That I is mean, we, absolutely right. These guests keep getting better and better. And, you know, uh, I, Daryl, I always refer to you as an SNL legend, uh, you know, mm. and it's going to be cool having two legends on this podcast today mm. because we are sitting down with an absolute legend. An absolute legend. I mean, everything and, from and, modeling, and like, and like, everything. A legend in like six or seven different areas. Oh, right. The amount of things that this guest today has done. It's incredible the fact that we've gotten to have her on. And I'm talking about the one and only Miss Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda. Jane the legend Fonda. What an incredible guest. I'm so excited to talk to her today. I mean, let me just say this real quick. Uh, You know, if you're not familiar with her for whatever reason, you need to be. I'm sure you are because... You must be living under a rock if you don't know her. She's had an insane career that has lasted decades. She's won two Academy Awards, seven Golden Globe Awards, one Primetime Emmy. That doesn't include all the time she was nominated for all these awards. She sold over 17 million workout videos. I mean, that doesn't even, that's not even the tip of the iceberg, not to mention like all her political causes and everything that she strives to help make a better place for the world. Like, I mean, just, she's just, I mean, it's just impressive. And I'm happy that you were able to get her on. I mean, uh, one cool thing about doing this podcast with you, Daryl, is that uh, you, you know, people love you and people, uh, you know, want to, want to have a a chat with you. So I'm just here along for the ride today. That's for sure. Man, I ain't done. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't done, man. Let's get going. Let's, let's bring Jane on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think she's uh, she's not quite yeah. ready to come on yet. But uh, I mean, if you guys, you know, if you haven't seen any work recently, I mean, she's got that new show on on Netflix. It's not it's not really new. It's going into its seventh season, seven seasons yeah. of a show called Grace and Frankie. It's on Netflix right now. If you haven't watched it, I've seen it. It's brilliant. It's so funny. Yeah. Lily Tomlin, what an amazing duo they those two make. She. She must have heard all of these superlatives because she is in the waiting room, folks. All right. Well, let's uh, let's have her join, guys. I'm excited. So let's let's add on the uh, legendary Jane Font. Oh, Hello, God Jane. bless. God bless, Jane. You look good, except you're looking so far down. 
I'm looking down? Yeah. You mean down in spirits? No, down in, at the camera. Look, look up where the camera is. Straight ahead. There you go. Right there is good. Yeah, because the reflection isn't in your eye. Do you have to go through this every day, Chris? I do sometimes, yes. Uh, but you know what? It's a pleasure to work with him, and it's a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Anything for Daryl? I spent the last three days, you know I, know, I know the stuff that you and I talk about at dinner, which is a really weird thing, if I may say so, in a great way, because you talk about stuff that uh, is going to be in the news soon, occasionally, and uh, trust we're not me. Gonna, listen, today we're not going to talk about the recall. Good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we're okay with that. That's fine with us. Okay, yeah. You know, you know just, what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Well, I mean... I've told, you, I've told you things that I don't talk about publicly. Yeah, you have. Okay. I'm sort of very flattered Let's, by uh, that. I mean, we should talk about your friendship. You guys have been friends for a while now. I mean, how did, how, how did you guys all, you know, end up becoming friends together? Have we started? Yes. Yeah, we have. Well, a friend of mine named Regina Scully is a film producer who gets involved always in very interesting documentaries. And she sent me a, a, a very early uh, Cracked Up, copy of Cracked Up, which I watched in utter sadness and fascination. I was, I was blown away. Um, also, but one of the big reasons is because Guys don't usually talk about trauma that they've experienced. It's very unusual. And so the broad audience of, you know, people in the world are kind of left to think, well, it's just women. And they don't, and they don't get to see heartfully what men go through. I mean, few have been through what Daryl has been through, but, but still they don't, they don't. The empathy can't be quite there the same. And I think it's important for people to understand that men are traumatized too. I was really impressed and I took it to, I sent it to Ted Sarandos at Netflix. And I, I said, this is, you know, not only is it Daryl Hammond, but it's so unusual important that this is a man who is speaking up. We, we don't see that. And, and I, I'm really glad that it's available. And a lot of people have seen it because when I tell people that I'm friends with you, Daryl, you know, they, they talk about having seen the documentary. Yeah. And then many months later, there's a podcast that, that was about, um, intergenerational trauma, which I'm always happy to talk about. <laughs> you know, because also I think it's important for celebrities to talk about things like that. Because people don't understand this stuff gets passed along, you know. So, um, and then I found out Daryl was going to be on it. And so I said yes. And so Daryl and I were on this podcast together. And one of the things that struck me is that I talked more than he did. Well, that's because, you know, in the very beginning, <clears throat> we were doing like a sound check technical rehearsal thing. And while there was a break in the in the technical rehearsal, you said something to me like, um, so you're going to give me your phone number, right? And I'm like, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I was a little taken aback by that. Um, but, you know, of course, secretly delighted. Why people don't ask you for your phone number? <laughs> no, um, I, just, I knew that I wanted to reach out to you. And because on this show, 
it wasn't just that he was quieter than I was, but he seemed so kind of forlorn. Mm. And do, you know, uh, having known his story now, because I've seen the documentary, my heart was just breaking. And I wanted to, I had recently lost my brother. And um, I don't know, I just, who also experienced trauma. So I asked for your number. And we had, we've had a few dinners, a few dinners. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a bunch. We haven't had one for a couple of months. We were going to have one. And then you thought maybe it might not be safe to be, eat indoors. <clears throat> yeah. We'll do it again. So that's awesome. that's how we know each other. Well, I mean, that's excellent. That's a really cool uh, way to, you know, connect. And, I mean, I I didn't know Daryl's documentary when I started doing this podcast with him. I've known him for a few years doing stand-up. You know, I do stand-up as well. So we've done shows and stuff together, you know, here and there. But I never – when he approached me during the pandemic about maybe doing this, you know, we were like, yeah, that'd be great. And then, you know, he told me about his documentary. I said, I didn't hear about this. and watched it. And, you know, I've already told you, Daryl, like it gives me a tremendous amount of respect for you mm. just at a human level, but also, you know, I already respect you on a professional level, but like, you know, it just makes me more appreciative of, of, of our friendship and, and the fact that I get to do this with you. And, uh, it was just a really, really brilliantly done documentary. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that it's out there. And I've, uh, I've seen people on social media, the amount of messages they send to Daryl saying that it, his documentary has helped that they've felt similar things that he's felt or gone through similar things. So it's really cool because I, I'm glad that he's done that because if for no other reason, besides telling his own story, he's helping other people, you know, yeah. and, and just having that out there really yeah. does resonate. Yeah. There's no other reason to tell your story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But Unless I mean, you feel that it can help other people. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's really cool when I see all those messages and all, they're all outpouring of love. I I've seen just, I mean, thousands of messages that on his on all his stuff like people just leave it on his facebook or whatever you know and i'm like i'm like wow this is just incredible so you know i mean daryl be glad that you did it i know you are but you know be be be, be happy because it really is something tremendous well i mean uh, you know my thing was the the crime wasn't the real crime wasn't the crime the crime was being expected not to talk about it and i think that um jane you probably know a little bit about that um you know when you started working with Dolly on nine to five and, and women in the workplace who were not having their stories told about being grabbed on the ass and underpaid. Right. And, uh, boy, is that a good movie? <laughs> Supposed to our secret secrets. It's true. And, huh? you know, the great psychologist, Alice Miller, the title of her book was, um, breaking the wall of silence is, is one of the books. And I'm sure you've yeah. read it, Daryl, you know, you sent it to me. Yeah, I sent it yeah. to you. Okay. Yes. Yeah, script. I just couldn't wait, you know, until my mother had passed and I wasn't under full contract with Lauren at the time. And I just thought it was a good time. I always wanted to tell this story because I'd been expected not to tell it. And that's a shitty feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you there's started. There's always this interesting question that, um, that we, I'm sure that we all ask. You know, if, if we had not had trauma in our lives, would we be talented anyway? You know, I, and I, it's hard to know the answer. I know that I don't think that Meryl Streep has had trauma. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, where did all that come from? I don't know. But, I mean, she kind of proves that it's not true. You don't need to to have trauma and she leads a pretty normal life. I think um, there's, there's a great book called talent and genius, a psychoanalytic reply to Sigmund Freud in which Freud says that 
roughly 25% of the geniuses in the world are healthy people. They don't have addiction. Yeah, it was an interesting stat. I mean, and I've known, I think, a few, you know, working at SNL and just really didn't have bad habits, but just kept churning out the Emmys, you know? And you've been nominated for 40 major awards. I, you've never even talked about that. Well, that I don't know. I don't know whose quote this is. It's not something that originated with me, but God doesn't come to us through our trophies. God comes to us through our wounds and scars. Wow. I love yeah. that. That's really nice. That's a great quote. I know that. And what about that beautiful thing you said with Oprah? You know, what was it something like? I'm not supposed to be perfect. I'm just supposed to be whole. Good enough. Whole. Oh, I'll take it. I, when I, when I started writing my memoirs in the um, early two thousands, once I was single again, I could start telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had, I had, I had become a Christian. I wasn't sure was it big C or little C or what it really was, except that, that I felt whole. And so I wanted to write my book really about the journey to wholeness, um, because my life has been like a lot of women, especially women in the entertainment industry. You know, if you're not perfect, if you're not just the right shape and you have just the right color hair and the right size boobs and that nobody's going to love you. And I was kind of brought up to believe that which is why, you know, I had some, so much body dysmorphia. And I wanted to write about the journey to wholeness. But because I was reading the Bible, I was the King James Bible, I was so disturbed that Christ says to his disciples, you must be perfect as our Father in, in heaven is perfect. And I thought, this can't be true. Then I read a book by William Bridges that that quoted the true Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. He didn't say you must be perfect. He said you must be whole, as your our Father in heaven is whole. I spent a few years with Emmett Fox's book Sermon on the Mount, in which he goes into the ancient trends, you know, the Aramaic and how it was thirty four letters and it was written to the left and 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 deciphering words like gives us. A, give us our Lord, our daily bread and what that meant. And that meant sort of an inspiration, a manna from heaven, the, the ability to know, you know, right from wrong and all of that. But I was amazed that uh, Christ, at least according to Emmett Fox was using the word hell as a verb, not as a place you're going to go. If you don't follow me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Was, oh, I'd like to see that book. Sermon on the Mount. It was super liberating for me, having spent so many years in church, where you're told, thinking about it, it's just as bad as doing it. Right. And there's a place for you, a place for people like you. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, So that was really, really liberating for me. It's one of the cool things. I liked what you said earlier about um, nature does funny things with childhood pain or trauma, and sometimes it does really good things. You know? That doesn't mean that every traumatized person is funny, but sometimes, you know, I, I sort of feel like it works that way with me, although I could prove that, 
Um, you know what I mean? Well, every funny person that I have ever known, and that <laughs> includes Richard Pryor and Red Fox and a whole lot of other people, um, they're all very neurotic. Mm. I don't know about you, Chris. I mean, we, Daryl, I know you are, and I know why you are, mm-hmm. you know, kind of. Uh, yeah. Consider yourself neurotic, Chris? I, I do. I, you know, I, uh, I feel like it's a common trait with comedians, especially, you know, in stand-ups. And, you know, it's a, right. it's quite a, quite a common thing you see quite often. But, like, you know, it's, it's can you channel it into something positive? That's, that's where, that's what you always try. You strive to talk. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. When I... You know, when you get old, like I am, I'm about 40 years older than probably than you two. One thing that is true is you start thinking a lot about your past. And one of the things I realized the other day that the things that I remember most acutely was when I made people laugh. Mm. And I remember and I didn't do it often. And it always came as a surprise to me and was always really empowering, which is why I remember it. You know, like Jewel Stein, MCA, right? Jewel Stein. Yeah. I made him laugh. I never yeah. made my father laugh. Mm. Jewel Stein laughed at, because of me in front of my father. That's one of my great memories. So I think that maybe, you know, making people laugh comes from people who are, they don't, they don't really, they're not great in their own skin, not too confident. And suddenly they discover they have this power to make people laugh. And and if they're really talented, then they can just keep on with it. But it's a fabulous feeling. It's, it's, it's much easier to make people cry than it is to make them laugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely addicting. I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of comedians that talk about when their early start and the first time that they, they get that big laugh on stage and how they're just like, I want that all the time. And that's what makes you, you know, propels you maybe as a comedian to, you know, keep doing that, keep doing better, like, you know, and work on your craft and, and, and just, you know, absolutely like, it's just such an addicting type of feeling and it's in the best way, you know? Go ahead. How much work goes into being a stand up comedian? Quite a, quite a bit right there. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's nasty. It's nasty. A lot of trial and error. It's a lot of, you know, putting your years in just starting. I mean, I'm 17 years in, and, you know, you, it's, you know, a lot of open mics in the beginning, bombing a lot in front of nobody and, you know, and just kind of figuring out your own voice. That's the other thing, too. The hardest part about being a stand-up is figuring out your own voice and how and, and who you truly are and making that come across genuine and, and in a great, funny manner. And yeah. so it, it, it takes time. It's not something you can do overnight. So there's, you know, a few people, I'm sure, that were just great out the gate. And, you know, but it, I mean, I'm always amazed when I see somebody super famous that's a big comedian you know I, I was I've seen some of the, the biggest names in comedy you know over the years and I've been privileged to watch them work on new material and see that they are human that it they bomb from time to time not every joke is gonna work but you know they legitimately I've seen them take that joke that is bombed and then two weeks later made it into something amazing and it didn't they didn't get disturbed discouraged it just takes that time I mean because I work with Lily Tomlin, um, who very often has physical things that, you know, she's supposed to do as Frankie. I'm great. She's Frankie. And she'll kind of mutter under her breath, I need to take it on the road. I need to take it on the road. <laughs> and, 
Oh, and, man. It's, and it's true. You know, she, oh. she wants to be able to work it out so that she knows exactly what is funny and the timing and the, I admire that so much. And Rodney Dangerfield, you say that all the time. Um, you know, you got to try them out of town, you know. Um, yeah. And we go to, you know, I mean, listen, I I don't like to think about the number of times I bombed in the first five years that I did stand-up, but it was so considerable. And even after that, you know, even when I finally get to New York City and I'd done a Showtime special and, my first night in New York City, I bombed. I mean, it's occurred to me. I believe I've beat up, been booed off stage four times. Booed off stage. How do you come back from that? You don't. You uh, you <laughs> kind of suck for a couple of weeks and consider <laughs> like giving this damn thing up because it's just it's just too. Yeah, hard. but you don't. Then how come? What what is it that keeps you going? I don't know. Um, I think Seinfeld said it's a little bit, you know, becoming a stand-up is a little like becoming a murderer. No no matter what people tell you about it, you're still going to do it. But the the (laughs) idea of making a group group of people or a large room of people laugh, who you never met before. You've never met these people. But they're laughing really hard. And and to get a big laugh from a group of strangers, I mean, you get high. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, Daryl, but every time, like, if I if I bomb, I almost it becomes almost like a vendetta where I want to go back on stage and I'm like, I will avenge that last, you know, terrible set. I'm going on there to prove that okay, like, no, 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 like that was just that crowd. Maybe that was me and that that last set, whatever it was. I'm I know that I'm, but you got to prove to yourself that you're better than that terrible set. And then when you get that when you, you know, you get the next good laugh and you don't bomb, you're like, okay, okay, okay. Like, you know, like, but that's what it takes. It's just sometimes you got to know maybe some certain, certain, certain circumstances prevented you from doing what you normally do, whether it's in your head or the audience stunk because they've been there for two hours, you know, or three hours or whatever it was, you know, there's always those little factors, but you know, most, most comedians obviously don't blame the audience. They blame themselves you know, because they, they go, all right. Meryl said it went on for four or five years when he first went to New York. How, how do you keep going for four or five years? Oh, you know, I was like three years um, before I could get into the clubs. Every club in the city had turned me down twice. And there was like this time when I remember I was in my apartment in Hell's Kitchen, and a, you know, traditional bathroom in the kitchen and, you know, toilet in the living room. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm just not going to make it. But I remember thinking that it would be easier to keep trying than to stop, you know? It'd be easier to just to try to find a way, you know, than than to quit altogether. It's something I just couldn't take. And um, you know, eventually, I, I did get a spot in one of the big clubs, and things went kind of well after that. I started getting spots in all the clubs, but I, I auditioned for every club at least twice and did not turn down. When when did you know, Daryl? When did you know that you were funny? I think I was funny when I was a teenager. I think my father was a really funny guy. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine that. I mean, sitting there, you know, swilling gin and, you know, looking at. When he wasn't jerk. totally drunk, he was funny. <laughs> yeah, he was funny. Funny. Okay. He so that's, funny. That's, that's where it came from. I think so. And I think my mother had this bizarre ability to talk like uh, other people. Uh, she talked to the coaches and teachers and then, people from the neighborhood and I 
I picked that up from her. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. She could talk like the pastor. She could talk like Dottie Westerberg. She could talk like, you know, the Laurel, the principal. Um, she could impersonate them. And mainly she, the thing she loved doing the most was um, Christmas Carol with Ralph Richardson and I believe Paul Schofield. And then one day when I was eight or nine years old, I started doing it with her and I could do it too. Just like a pup. Oh God. I could, I could, I could do, I could do the, and we did that all the, I mean, we did it, you know, those are the few occasions when my mother was delightful and not complicated. And she was acted like a girl and, and, and was fun as hell to be around. Um, most of the time, you know, it was a different experience, but yeah, wow. that's where it came from, you know? And when did you, when did you discover you were funny, Chris? Uh, I'd probably say when I was a little kid, I used to, uh, my grandfather used to tell me jokes and sometimes they were adult jokes that a kid should not be repeating, but I, you know, I kind of took those jokes and I would say them. And then, you know, I, it was like that kind of that feeling. Cause that would crush like hearing as an adult, hearing a child say kind of a dirty joke out loud. Like you, it's, you know, it was, became that. And then I just kind of became kind of formulated my, my, um, personality, if you will. And then, um, I think high school was the first time I realized that when I was, I used to write uh, book reports, but I would write the book report. I wouldn't read the book. I would just make up what the book was about. I'd make up a story, you know, like Romeo and Juliet. I would just, you know, write, I would just make the whole thing up and they would make you read it in front of the class. But because I made it up, I would just, the whole class like would just, I killed. Like I would, I remember like just reading this fake book report about a story I made up. And I remember looking at the teacher in the back who was this younger teacher like fresh out of college teaching high school and I just remember her putting her head down because she was laughing so hard and I just remember that moment of just looking at her like okay maybe there's maybe there's something here maybe I'm I don't know what I'm doing but I like this and then she gave I wish I kept this she gave me this the the, the paper back with the grade and she wrote a big f on it and then she wrote like you know very funny however <laughs> maybe next time write on the subjects given to you. you know? And so that was like the first time. And then it's funny because, you know, I remember like weeks later we do the book reports again and you have to read it in front of the class and then other people try to copy me and they would try to make stuff up too. And it was like, I was like, Oh, maybe I set some sort of trend here. Maybe I, maybe I'm onto something. And then, you know, and I, you know, I feel like that was the first time I realized like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm a good writer. And so I started writing, you know, obviously stand up and I've written, you know, TV stuff too. So like, I feel, I feel like that's a, uh, that was, that was the, that was the beginning of it all. I think. I had a moment when Truman Capote was speaking to the uh, student body at the university of Florida and he got a ginormous laugh. And I remember thinking, I want that. I want that so bad, <laughs> you know, and I never quite, Never quite forgot it, but didn't really have the nerve to try to do stand-up till, you know, 10 years later or something. Wow. Well, let me ask you this, Jane. Like, uh, you know, we didn't talk about stand-up. You've done everything in your career. Have, have you ever thought about trying stand-up? Um, I did. I, I, my friend Ben Schwartz let me come on to the Upright Citizen Brigade. Okay. Once. I wanted to see what it was like. Okay. N- I 
all of the things that I was about to say were about sex. And somebody always got there before me. Everybody was faster than me. Oh. My, all of my things were sexist. And, and I was ashamed of that. But I, I never, my brain would freeze. I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Wow, okay. But was that the only time you approached it? Um, did you ever try it again? Uh, no. But, you know, I do, I do a lot of public speaking. And over the years, um, you know, I, I have developed lines that get laughs. For example, okay. um, when I, I talk a lot about, uh, forgive me, toxic masculinity and, and um, what it is about the way we rear boys that cause men to be so worried about their manhood and how important an issue it is because we elect people who have this problem like Lyndon Johnson who told his biographer that he didn't feel he could pull out of Vietnam because Bobby Kennedy would call him an unmanly man cause how many how many American men died because Johnson was afraid of premature evacuation <laughs> I'm sure that did really well. That's a great line. That is a really great it's a line. good line. Yeah. yeah. It gets laughs. I love it. I look forward to it every time I make it. About that subject. And, you know, I have a, a, few, a few a few other things that, that can make people laugh. But it's interesting you should say that about it's interesting you should say that about, you know, when we were growing up in in, in the Bible Belt and Florida. I mean, we were all from Georgia, but I mean that whole thing of playing football and when I tried to play football and I didn't like, in fact, I really hated hitting people and worse, I hated being hit. And the things that were said to me, you know, when I quit the team midway through my second year, my sophomore year were incredible. And it was all about my sexuality. Was I a man? Yeah. You know, I mean, right to my face. Yeah. Um, well, I think we talked about that briefly one time when we were we were at dinner. But uh, premature evacuation, it is. <laughs> yes. I mean, not to, not to switch the uh, the topics too much, but uh, I mean, we were talking for a second there about your co-star Billy Tomlin. How awesome is it to work with her? I mean, you you've been fortunate enough to work with her for so long. I mean, nine to five to all the way now with, I mean, Netflix, the you know Grace and Frankie show. Uh, I mean, how how amazing is she? to be friends with and work with. She's amazing to be friends with and, and, and work with. It's for me, it's, it's a real honor. You know, I'll have to say I didn't grow up watching TV. I, I, I was not a TV person until I realized that the only way I was going to get work was on TV. Then I started watching. So I wasn't familiar with Lily Tomlin. I didn't watch laugh in. I didn't watch, you know, the specials with Richard Pryor at the time, but I went to a show downtown in L.A. in 1978. It was called Appearing Nightly. It was a one-woman show. It was a, I think it was a precursor to In Search of Science of Intelligent Life in the Universe. Okay. Many of the same, but a lot of characters. And I didn't know what to expect. I just, I was by myself, and I saw this woman become 20 people. All of them people. Fully realized. And I, I just, I was floored. I was, 
I was just, I had never seen anything like it. I was completely smitten. And I said to myself, I can't make a movie about secretaries unless Lily Tomlin is in it. And as I was driving home from the theater, I turned on the radio and it was Dolly Parton singing Two Doors Down. And I thought, oh, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda and Dolly Parton. Just imagine, you know, she can't see the keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) That would be, you know, she'd never acted. She'd never been in a movie, but just the visual. I knew it would be a great movie. It took me a year to convince them, but. That was my first experience at Lily Tomlin, and we remained friends. And now, you know, being with her for seven years in this, it's really, I'm, I'm, she's getting a big award from AFI that, um, that I'm going to be giving her tomorrow. And I've written up a, as I was writing up what I wanted to say about her, you know, I, I, I talk about how she 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 really gets granular with her characters. You know, she really she goes deep and she and she um, she refuses to be facile, which infuriates me because man, can I go facile? So facilely, so easily. You know, we're all tired. It's two in the morning. Boy, can I go facile? Not Lily. Not Lily. I always feel like at two in the morning. She she would go take it on the road now to try to figure out what it is. You know, how does she toss the keys? And You know, she's she's very, very meticulous. It's just fascinating to me. What I've learned from watching her is how fastidious comedians have to be. The word, every word, the timing, the it's just um, it's it's a real honor to be able to watch her. I can't say any of it's rubbed off, but it's really an honor to watch her. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird with her timing because when, when a joke lands, if it goes a little this way or a little that way, it's not funny anymore. Right? You know what I mean? And that's yeah. we're talking about a millisecond or yeah. less. And then there's her face. I was just watching the dailies yesterday, the rushes, just for audience who might not know what that means. It's you get to watch the next day, the stuff you shot the day before. So I did that yesterday in a scene that we did. That's very funny. But most of the time, what made me laugh was just these tiny little changes in her face and the timing of it. Oh my God. And you know, um, Bob Newhart is, is my neighbor. You know that Daryl. And Again, because I'm not a TV person, I never used to watch the Bob Newhart show. So I have now watched every single Bob Newhart show from the original with Suzanne Plachette in New York through afterwards when it was the Newhart show. And he was somebody called Dick in in Vermont. And timing, the timing is just, it's such a lesson to watch, you know, pause lower the eyes, blink the eyes a few times, and then look back. I do. It doesn't work. <laughs> but there's something about the way, you know, a great comedian like that can do the tiniest little thing. Mm-hmm. And that's all he does. And it's very small. Yeah. Sometimes smaller is larger. Sometimes smaller is better. Totally. Uh, one- I know. I wish I could learn that. Yeah, I mean, what I've always discovered is when I get in trouble up on stage, my tendency is to get louder and go faster when the remedy is to get smaller and go slower. Make them lean in. 
make yeah. them lean in and grab and get a hold of them again. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you I think mean, about stuff like that, Chris? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I've learned a lot from just watching a lot of people like, you know, I mean, that's the thing whenever a young comedian asks for my advice, which isn't that often. Cause I'm, you know, I'm just a comic. I'm not anybody famous. I just enjoy the craft, but every once in a while, a young up and coming comic will ask, you know, if I have any advice and I'll say, watch, watch the people that have been around before. Why? I mean, especially if you're going to, you know, if we're talking about acting specifically with comedic actors, you know, go back and watch shows like Bob Newhart show and, you know, and just see, what made like break it down and see what made that scene so funny why did the audience just lose it there was it the writing was it the facial expressions was it the pause was it the timing like it, chances are it's all of those combined it's everything all at once so you know it, the thing i've learned the most is like you know just to study study people that i i know are great and you know, when I first moved to LA, I was living in LA for a long time. Now I live in New York, but like my first move to LA, I watched, um, <clears throat> I watched some just absolute, you know, incredible comedians in the back of the comedy store. And I, I you know, I'm this young comic, <clears throat> I don't know anybody. And I just sat there and I was like watching these greats. And I just I had this moment going, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not doing that, you know, and that's, but, but it made me learn and it made me want to, you know, get to that, you know, <clears throat> I still places where comics can go to learn how to do it. Yeah, I mean, people people need to like you know people can go and hang out in the back of comedy clubs. There, comedy clubs. I mean, is there a school? Is there a school? There's you could take classes, but a lot of times those classes are usually from teachers that aren't the best people to be teaching. In my opinion, I'm not saying all of them. There's some really great classes you could find, but they're hard to find the right teacher. I think the best thing is, you know, a lot of people say with comedy, especially in stand-up, is that, you know, funny can't be taught, but you can be taught how to present that funny better, you know? So there's there's ways you can always learn. And I mean, for me, I, it was just, besides trial and error and doing open mics and going and doing as many shows as I could, it was a lot of just watching, watching greats, you know, and, and sitting in the back of comedy clubs, any chance I could get, and just sitting there and just going, okay, like, this is this is just incredible where he went from this joke and that watching, you know, just some absolutely amazing, you know, comedians over the years. So, you know, that's that's how I, you know, get. What about you, Daryl? Well, Jane, they have a little thing called open mic night. Ever hear of open mic? And I did a jillion of them. I used to drive around Florida in my little Toyota. I'd drive from Orlando to Tampa to do three minutes or I'd drive from Orlando to West Palm to do three minutes every night. Some city in the state. I could do three minutes, you know? And then later when I got to New York and I got finally got past the comedy cellar, I mean, by the time I got SNL, I was doing 300 nights a year. 300 nights a year. That's a lot of sets. God almighty. <laughs> yeah, and that went on for years. And previous to that, me and Billy Gardell from Mike and Molly and the new show on CBS, we drove around the country and my little blue bomb, they, it was a good, a, a, a contraption of some sort that could barely move. But we drove around the country for eight years trying to be funny. Eight years. Is there a part of the country that is that laughs more? I, I, the, only, the only part of the country I know in terms of laughing more or less 
I know a city where they laugh less and people say they laugh less, but they do something and that's San Francisco. But what they do in San Francisco and nobody knows why is they applaud. Lots of, lots of polite applause, but they never really, they never, I mean, not for me. I mean, you know, we talk as comics, we talk in terms of getting, I got 70% of the room or 90% of the room or a hundred percent of the room. You know, you want up around 80 or 90%. And I, I had become pretty proficient at landing near that mark. And then I went to San Francisco. Uh, I was getting 40 to 50, 40 to 50% of the room. Um, and that's every show I've ever done there. But a lot of applause. Just different. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. So there's no north-south kind of comedy axis. What does that mean? I like the South laughs more. They're more oh, I'm, uninhibited. I'm I am funnier in the South. There's no <laughs> doubt about it because I know those Southern people. Uh-huh, yeah. I know everyone in the audience. I know your granddad real well. Yeah. And um, they are uh, pretty patriotic down there. And yet in the last few years, I mean, I was at the Jacksonville punchline and I, I, I was on stage and I said, so anyway, Donald Trump, and from the back of the room, I hear, uh-uh, I wouldn't if I were you. Yeah. Like, wow, is he popular in certain parts of the country and right. down there. Yeah. So it's a little different, you know. Well, uh, that's now, because you know those people. Oh, I know them. Yeah. I know them, and I know what they like. Yeah, you know? I, I think there's like, that happens a lot. Like, different cities are different. You, you know, you have to kind of gear your set towards wherever you are sometimes, you know, and the South like tends to be obviously more, a little more Republican, you know, and you, you tend to have to shift away from any sort of democratic views if you want to kill, you know, um, or if you, you hope that it's funny to both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, if you want to do political stuff. I mean, but like, you know, there's, I always found that like some of the more blue collar towns, the ones that are just hardworking folks, like those are the ones that laugh the most because they've had a hard day and they work these, these really hard jobs and they want, you know what, they're going out, they want to get a laugh. They want to enjoy their lives. And I, yeah, like, beers and loosened up. Yeah. 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 I mean, when I lived in, in San Diego, that's where I started comedy. And like, you know, they, that town especially was a lot of like military and um, a lot of people that just, you know, that work those type of jobs and they come out and they're, I think that's like one of the best cities for comedy. Cause it's just the laps just are so big and hard because they're just, you know what, they're there and they know you're there to, you're doing a job. You're getting paid for this and they know, well, we got it. We're going to trust this guy that he's, he's good. And, and, you know, and if you try to live up to their expectations, but you know, they are, it is different cities of different things. You know, you, you definitely like get a little more, uh, in LA, a little bit more of the social justice type of vibe, a little bit more, you know, uh, uptight audiences, if you will, because they're very much like, I don't know, I get offended easily type of thing. Like, I, that's how I've noticed in LA. But, you know, mm -hmm. there's still good audiences there, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, they're just a little harder sometimes, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I saw something, one of the, one of the filmmakers, uh, was it Renee? Clément? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and, and this is from the documentary, uh, Jane Fonda and Six Acts, you were described as part rose petal, 
Art Thorne. Remember that? Or do you? No. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That was, was on- that was 1970. This is 1962, I think, or something. Yeah. Okay. I just was wondering if you liked that documentary about you. Yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. I, I, it, it, it surprised me. I had nothing to do with how it was put together, and I thought it was really smart the way she did it. Yeah, it's the same thing with the, the Regina Scully, Geraldine Dreyfus, Michelle Ezrick documentary. I didn't do anything. Followed me around for seven years. You know? Seven years. Yeah. Yeah, it took five it. years for me to be able to walk back into the home that I grew up in, you know, well, five or six years. Yeah. That's why it took so long. They were waiting for that shot, you know? And, um, yeah, so I guess it came out pretty good, you know? It did. I thought it was really good. And <clears throat> I remember, you know, because I've spent a lot of time in the South, um, Buford, South Carolina, and Thomasville, Georgia, you know. And so when it showed your house and the street that it's on and everything, I know that street. I know those houses. I I felt um, I felt I kind of knew you in a different way because they're familiar to me. Mm. Those streets. You identified with them on some sort of subliminal level. Yeah, but also I knew kind of the socioeconomic group that I was that we were talking about, mm-hmm. and um, you know when I saw the house in the street, you know what it made me think of. I wonder what kind of pressures he got put on him in high school. <laughs> you know, it's it, the kind of place where they can be real cruel in high school. Not that they can't be cruel everywhere, but. Toxic masculinity seems to be a little bit more nourished yeah. down there. Yeah. That is such a great phrase. And I'm not sure exactly. It's like the phrase deep state. I'm not exactly sure what it means. I'm not exactly sure what toxic masculinity means. Well, it certainly didn't originate with me. Um, it, what it means is there's nothing wrong with masculinity, but when you're brought up to feel Real boys don't cry. You can't show your emotions. Don't be a mommy's boy. Uh, you know, you got to suck it up and never leave a fight without giving the punch, you know, that kind of thing. It's like it's a, it's a club that you're not just automatically a part of because you've got a penis. It's It's something that you have to constantly, every day, prove you belong to and you should be here because you're one of the boys. Oh, my God. I mean, imagine Lyndon Johnson, president of the United States, still worried that Bobby Kennedy would think he was a, an unmanly man if he withdrew. You know, that that's an example of how it can manifest in our leaders when that's the way they're brought up as little boys. It all starts... With little boys. There was a football coach in the town that I'm from, and I'm not going to use nouns, but he was really successful coach. And um, he was fired from his job and his life ruined when someone saw him, uh, I'm told, kissing a man, like in a nightclub. And that, that was license and inspiration to destroy this guy. Yeah. Oh, well, that's toxic masculinity, huh? Yeah. 
So all the comics say that Frankie and Johnny's funnier than ever. You must be having a blast. Grace and Frankie? I mean, so me, Grace and Frankie. That it's like funnier than it ever was. It, it, it is funny. I, yeah. But, you know, I don't... An average day on the set, because Marta Kaufman is the showrunner, sometimes she directs. But, like, for example, when, when she directs, and I'll say a line, and maybe I'll have I'll change one word, and I'll say, well, it means the same. Why can't I use that word? Because that word's not funny. <sighs> Who knew? You know. Yeah. She, you know she'll. She, I'm so aware, even now after seven years, that I, I I don't have that funny bone. I don't know why a word is funny or why a certain rhythm is. Funny, and if you don't do it that way, it's not funny anymore. And um, so, you know, I, I really rely a lot on directors to help me. To, so not, yeah. not, a lot of, not a lot of improv- improvising there, huh? No, I mean I'm I'm used to more improvisatorial type of approach. <clears throat> not no, we don't do that. Yeah, I think Steve Allen wrote a book called How to Be Funny, and he talked about nouns that are funny, verbs that are funny. You know, and um, I don't chicken think chicken is you know, funny. Why huh? is chicken? Chicken is funny. Okay. Why? Steak is not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's what Lily says. You got to take them out. You got to try them out of town. Yeah. You got to find an audience and try those jokes out. I remember Gary Goodrow once. I was doing a, some skits with him, and he wore skits, and he held up a rubber chicken. Chicken is funny, and people laughed. <laughs> I never knew why. <laughs> I don't quite. Do you go through your set like that, Chris? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes you just, if you change, like she was saying, you change one word and can she completely change a joke, you know? And it's, it's weird how sometimes, you know, a joke can work, but you can feel it as a comedian that it's not quite there, that there's something off. And then you, that's when I start looking at it going, okay, how can I phrase this differently? How can I try this? How can I re- restructure this sentence? I mean, what word can I substitute and use here? And then you try it, and all of a sudden the bit kills, and you're like, "Oh, well, it was just one word." It's you know, it's it's you know, it's, it's so baffling on how one word can really make such a difference. And that kind of stuff. Sometimes yeah. I get so baffled about the material that some comedians use. For example, in a in an earlier set that that Chelsea Handler used to do. She did this whole riff about how she comes downstairs and she opens her refrigerator and there's something that has a label watermelon and another thing that has a label lemon halves and another that has, you know, and then she, and she gets people laughing about the fact like she wouldn't know what was in there. She has to have things written out and people were hysterical and my things are labeled too. It never would have occurred to me to try to make a joke out of it. I mean, why why not put labels on? I don't know. I, but you guys find ways to make things funny that they're part of my life too. But I never thought that anybody could make them funny. Yeah, but you're funny. When I, I, it's funny. Whenever and, I've been sitting around with you, I I always laugh. I feel like you're, we have we have laughs. No, I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Oh well, it seems it seems know. like to me. Do you do you think it's do you think it's harder to do uh, like a funnier script like a comedy than it is comedy harder definitely you think that okay That's oh, interesting yeah. 
Oh yeah. I mean, you've, you've done so much stuff with your career. It's like, you know, I feel like it would all just come so easy to you because you're, you're so seasoned. I've done funny movies. I mean, Barefoot in the Park holds up even today. That's yes. Neil Simon. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of his best. So when you have brilliant writing like that and you throw yourself into it as an actor, you know, you're going to be funny. But no, I, I find I find comedy much, much harder. Do you like the challenge of it, though? I mean, you must have looked at the script for, you know. Honey, I'm glad to be working. <laughs> I'm 84. I'm glad I have a job. It yeah, could be comedy. Yeah. It could be drama. I don't know. I feel like you can, You have your pick of the litter kind of thing. You can do whatever you, you know. Well, you just get a thousand scripts. You know, okay, okay. But, like but, when you, but here's something that, 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 that's interesting. And I think I've told Daryl this. After this, we finish Grace and Frankie end of October, and I do three movies back to back. Wow. Two of them are with Lily Tomlin. Oh, amazing. And nothing to do with Grace and Frankie. Okay. That's all? Yeah. That's great. I mean. Man, that's a good way to live, Jane. Right? I must have done something right. (laughs) Good way to live. And one of them that's Lily and me and Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett. Wow. That's That's a powerful cast right there. It's like a personal, it's like a personal pantheon. Come yeah. to life, it's like wow! So excited! I'm excited! So I'm excited for that to come out. <laughs> I'm die before then. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to be with us, though. Is it over? No, oh, no. We still have time. Come on, Daryl. Oh, you no, mean, I I'm just, so busy acting that I. <laughs> no, I was just thinking about your busy schedule. Yeah. So politics is not something that you really want to talk about. Do you want to talk about what happened in Afghanistan? Any of that stuff, or you want to stay off it? Well, I mean, yeah, let's not go there. Okay. And let's- Trump? Anything on Trump? <laughs> no, no, we're not talking about Trump either. Okay. Well, I mean, everyone knows, you know, Jane, that you you're I so passionate about everything. Seeing in the news. Every day, every day, every day, every day. You know, I mean, I, it's a fight for me every day to not get depressed. It's hard not to be depressed. But I'm, I'm going to say this, though. I mean, I appreciate how passionate you are about like, so many things and how much of an activist you've been in, in bringing, you know, attention to things that need attention. You know, I mean, everything from, you know, what you did back with the Vietnam War to everything that's going on now. I mean, it's... And we don't obviously have to get into a lot of that stuff, but I just wanted to say that, you know, I, the I thing do. that matters the I do most. your passion for all that stuff. The thing that matters the most is the climate crisis because we have so little time. Yeah. And because if we don't confront that and solve that, we can't solve anything else. No kidding. I mean, yeah. what, what no, we're no. living through now is – it's going to get worse every year. It's going to get worse, and that's the new normal. Until yeah. it becomes catastrophic, what we want to avoid is the catastrophe. And that means for those who are listening, do whatever you can to get your elected officials to refuse to give fossil fuel subsidies. Do you know that in the in by partisan infrastructure bill there are 25 billion dollars going to the fossil fuel industry this came out at the same day that the inter- intergovernmental report on the climate crisis came out i mean what is this administration thinking 
We can't solve the problem. He might as well just come here and set fire to our forests if he's going to give $25 billion to the fossil fuel industry. We have to wean ourselves in nine years off fossil fuels. Everybody that's watching, that's what we have to do. Whatever you can do to pressure your elected officials to get us over fossil fuels. It's really a concern. I mean, everything that's going on in the world, and it, it baffles me sometimes, too, to see these people that are climate change deniers and say that, oh, no, 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 it's not. Every year we're seeing things get worse and worse, and it really is such a big deal that I'm always surprised that more people don't take it seriously and or are, you know, trying to fix it, trying to change things. So, I mean, the fact that you're so passionate about that and bringing that to light is, is a big deal. It really is. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of things that other people wouldn't, you know. More and more people are realizing it and standing up. Yeah, Maybe and, we're, we're hitting yeah. bottom. That's always a good thing. Hit bottom. Right, Daryl? <laughs> yeah. As long as you're prepared to then rise from the bottom. Words to live by, Jane. Words to live by. <laughs> Absolutely. I know people in, that have moved out of New Orleans because it gets hotter every year and the waters of the Gulf get hotter every year and they really are expecting another Katrina, you know, and they, li- and they move. Yeah, they move. I hope your friend gets out. Yeah. That's right. So we'll, we'll schedule a new dinner somewhere outside. We were going to go uh, so El Coyote, we were going to go to El Coyote, but that's that's all they don't have outside. Well, they do. I found out, so we're going to go there. Okay, that's a good that's place. I've been awesome. there. I've been there a couple of times. It's not bad. It's good. The food is really good. Yeah, yeah, solid place. Um, I feel like before you know we do wrap things up shortly uh, is that uh, I wanted to ask you about um, Broadway. I mean, you took such a long break from Broadway, and then you came back. You have any plans to do anything else with Broadway again? No. No, I, um, I did four plays. I didn't enjoy any of them. Um, and yet my father loved theater and in the days when it wasn't fashionable for movie stars to also do theater, he was always doing theater and I knew that he loved it more than anything. And I always regretted that I had never had a positive experience. So when I turned 70, Moises Kaufman offered me a script that I thought was pretty good. I thought it was really interesting. And so I thought, this is my chance to discover what my father found in the theater. And I did. And I did. What did you find? The joy of performing every night in front of a live audience. It's hard as hell. You know, I, at least for me, I, you know, I, every single nook and cranny of my psyche had to be devoted to that moment when the curtain went up and I was going to perform, you know, the sleep, what I ate, what I did, what I thought. I couldn't expend any additional energy because I was on stage the whole time. It was a taxing, pretty taxing role. And um, I really, really, I, I enjoyed being that absorbed in something that I, I loved the meaning of the play and what it was saying and audiences liked it. And, and we were all nominated for Tony's and I felt really good, but I'll never do it again because you have to be rich to go to the theater. I don't want to talk to rich people. I want to talk to people who who, who watch TV. <laughs> you know, that's why I, I like television, actually, because you're reaching more people. So I'm very happy doing TV and movies. They end up on TV. Yeah. I was <laughs> happy to see you come back to TV. I mean, um, I got to say the newsroom was one of my favorite shows. It was excellent. Show. Yeah. yeah. You were excellent on that show. That was such a great 
uh, script. I was, I was sad. It only had a short run. You know, I, I really wish it kept going, but you know, it was, we all did. Yeah. We all wished that it kept going. It was great. <laughs> I'm happy to see you back more doing more television. I'm happy to see this Grace and Frankie going. So seven seasons. That's really great. Yeah. Longest running Netflix show. We, we were their first comedy. We were there when it was just House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, and Grace and Frankie. <laughs> and I think they had, I remember, they were hoping to get 50 million members. They were approaching 50 million members. Oh, boy. What is it now? <laughs> you know? 500 million? I don't know. Yeah, but it, something crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Probably I billion. Mean, it's, it's definitely impressive. I mean, uh, and I hope that you'll continue even if this – the show does, and I hope you continue to make more more TV stuff. I hope so too. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. It's just great seeing you on there. I like, um, I like streaming. Yeah. When I did Broadway, I only did one show. I did 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and the experience was so difficult. I, I wonder if I ever want to try that again. It's so. What, what was it that was the most difficult? What was the difficult part? Because for you? if you you can't show up and be not in the mood. Right. You can't show up just not feeling it tonight. Yeah. You know, when I'm doing stand up, I can show up not when I'm not feeling it that night. And I can just move it around through the audience until I find a hot pocket, you know, not same, not the same thing with the script, the Broadway play. And boy, those audiences get bored in a hurry. And they hurry. pay so much for those tickets. I you know. Give them everything every night. Yes. It was hard as heck. And eight shows a week? Yeah. Do you know that my dad was Mr. Roberts on stage on Broadway for four years? He never missed one performance. Wow. Was that 12 months a year? Wow. That was 12 months a year, eight performances a week. My mother died during that time. He never missed one performance. Wow. And then he took it on the road. Took it all around the United States. That's dedication to theater. That's both yeah. impressive and I feel bad for his understudy. <laughs> did his understudy ever go on? No. No, he, was, he worked, did every show. I mean, oh, he did every show. He never missed one. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, at one point, probably like, do you even need me? Why am I here? Like, you know. yeah. Yeah. Iron Man. Yeah, really. I was an Iron Man. So, you know, people would say to me, oh, my God, I don't know how you do it. Five months, eight shows a week. And I would just think, yeah, you don't know what my dad did. Come on. I did six weeks, eight shows a week. And, boy, I was happy to be out of it. It was hard. Happy when it was over. Okay. Yeah, when it was done. And and I'd done a reasonably good job. But I had James Lapine working with me and, you know, he's a great director. He got stuff out of me that I wouldn't have expected to be there. And, uh, I was, and you know, when I did uh, the play about my book at La Jolla Playhouse with Chris Ashley directing, the same thing. I was, I was like doing acting scenes, like acting scenes, you know. I had done uh, a couple of um, Dick Wolf shows and was reasonably okay in one of them. But I remember looking at looking at the footage and going, Dick Wolf is the star of this scene. He edited a hundred takes and pieced it into something that was representative, you know. So 
I'm always getting help by strong directors and producers. It certainly helps. Yeah. Can I ask, um, what, what was, do you, do you have like the favorite thing you've ever worked on? You want to, you know, it's such a great career. I don't, uh, I don't know if there's something that stood out where you were like, you know what, that, that movie, that well, my favorite character that I ever played, it was, I won an Emmy for it. It was on te- ABC TV in in the early eighties. It was called the doll maker. I played a hill, the doll maker. I played a hillbilly from Appalachia during the Second World War. Was it a similar character to a, your character in A Period of Adjustment? No, 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 no. Did she, you have an accent in A Period of Adjustment? I can't remember. Yes, that's my favorite thing I ever saw. You do. Really? Oh, I think so. When you say the line, I'll get my you know, head back. The only, com- the only comedy that Tennessee Williams ever wrote? Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's a heck of a script. Yeah. A brilliant yeah. writer. <laughs> when you have the line, when you say, I'll get my handbag myself and storm. All right. I'll get it myself. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I thought to myself, I'm glad I've never been, been on the, <laughs> the receiving end of a salvo like that. Wow. <laughs> no, this other character. No, she was illiterate. You know, she chopped her own wood and cooked her own possum, and and I did all of that. And uh, I loved her. I loved her. I loved the whole experience of becoming her and researching her and doing her. Yeah. Well, I loved it too. I think. So, the, uh, Chris, I was going to say, I think the uh, I think the only thing that we were we have left to see from you is just another famous Jane Fonda workout video, right? We got to expect one of the. <laughs> No, don't hold your breath, Chris. <laughs> I, I did that video. So great. I remember I did use, so great. I, I used that video for like which a one year. I made 23. Well, I don't know which one you mean. Oh, I only bought one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up in the same. 80s. I, used, I saw, I saw <laughs> those videos all the time. They were, they, were, they were always so popular. Everyone loved them. Everybody had them. Well, they worked. Yeah, they did, right? Like every, people got in shape. I'm sure people would tell you all the time. Like, I did your video. Launched a uh, it launched an industry. That's why I'm the only a non-engineer in the Video Hall of Fame. Wow. Right. Okay. <laughs> Very proud of that. Another feather in Jane Fonda's cap, Chris. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then, uh, you know, my last question I'd say to you is that, do you, have any, do you have any stories that maybe people ask you, like, oh, what's like a fun story of maybe behind the scenes, something that you've done with, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a TV show or movie or something that you, maybe people don't know? Like something funny or something just in general, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. The problem with Jane is Jane's stories involve super famous people. <laughs> or, the, no, you know? I think the problem with Jane is it's just had so much, you know, she's worked so much that it's it's just an incredible career. And hard. Well, the problem yeah. with it is that, that I've told all my stories and I've okay. written about them. But I'll tell you my Barbarella story. Yes, please. Um, the cinematographer for Barbarella devised a set. It was the set of the, of the spaceship, you know, which normally, you know, it's, it's on the ground and it's on the ground. And he tipped it up so that it opened up to the ceiling of this huge soundstage in Italy where we were filming. And then he put a very thick pane of glass over it. And then he had me lie on the pane of glass and he put a wind machine to blow my hair and they kind of shot in slow motion. 
and I had to do a striptease. And I hated getting naked. But it was my husband's specialty. His name was Roger Vadim. He'd been married to Bridget Bardot before me. And I didn't know how to say no. I didn't know then that no was a complete sentence. So I got drunk. I drank a lot of vodka so they wouldn't know. And I did my striptease. And then the next day we go to the dailies audience. You now know what dailies are, the film that we're watching that we shot the day before. And a bat had crossed the camera multiple times. Now we're, we're on a soundstage the size of a, of a football field. Mm. The bat had to fly between me and the lens of the camera that was hanging from the ceiling above me. So we had to shoot it over again. So my hangover is that the opening title sequence of Barbarella, where I do a space striptease, is me lying on a glass on the second day doing the striptease with a hangover. (laughs) Just so you know. Okay, that was... That's a pretty darn good one. Yeah, no, that's a great story. I mean, these are things that, you know, people don't, they don't know because they, you know, it's, it's not common knowledge. It's, it's fun to hear these type of things. And this, this is why we, we enjoy having guests like you on our podcast to be able to talk to you about stuff like this. Could I have told you more stories if I'd known that's what you wanted? I would love for you to tell us more stories. <laughs> We're out of time. I know I know a couple of them, but I wouldn't repeat them. <laughs> I know you do. You know what it just means? It means, Jane, you have to come back on our podcast again at some point. Okay. Tell us more stories. It's a deal. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. And I know I speak for Daryl as well. Thank you very much. I'll tell you what it was like to swim naked with Greta Garbo. I kid you not. <laughs> Next on the third person. <laughs> talks about Swimming naked with Garbo. I'm very excited to hear that story. That's for sure. <laughs> and El Coyote Outdoors. We'll do it. All right. Bye-bye. You. Thank you so much, Jane. I hope to meet yeah. you one day in person. I appreciate you being on here. Oh. All right. Take care. Thank Stay you, Jane. Safe. Oh, guys. I mean, what a what an incredible episode jane fonda is just so endearing and just such a beautiful person i think just a great interesting just, it was like i didn't even you don't have to do any work no kidding i mean it was just fun to talk to it was like a nice flowing conversation and what you know the fact that she took the time for for you daryl's but really i mean i'm just here for the ride i'm along for the ride it was just amazing to did i was did i do okay it's great I was hoping I'm not, you know, jumping in too much and, 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 you know, taking over the conversation, but uh, yeah, she was just, I, I, she's one of those people that you just, you automatically just want to sit down and talk to for hours. You know, we, I wish we could have talked longer, but you know, she was on a time constraint. So. All right. Well, thank you for um, providing the the platform for us to do that. I mean, I'm, she's unforgettable, man. Yeah, she's, I mean, it's just, you know, really cool to have her on, guys. And I hope that uh, I hope you guys will all share this episode as well as the other ones we've done in the past. Make sure to add us on social media. Like I said, uh, Daryl's at Daryl C. Hammond. I'm at Chris Millhouse, two L's in Millhouse. Uh, Jim is at Jim Search. Um, and, you know, check out our stand-up dates, by the way. We do stand-up, all three of us. We do stand-up. Uh, you know, one day we'll do a show all together. But uh, Daryl's doing a lot of shows out in L.A. and, uh, you know, Orange County, all that stuff out there. In the meantime, guys, thank you so much for listening. 
Thanks so much for sharing. And uh, we're going to be back with another great episode very soon. So we'll talk to you soon.